Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Jacob Urban, uh, a program manager at Occipital like the occipital lobe of your brain, occipital.com. Mm-hmm. How are you doing, Jacob? Yeah, hey, how's it going? Yeah, thanks for coming. So tell me about uh, occipital. What do you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. At uh, occipital, uh, we're a computer vision company, uh, which means you know we're teaching computers how to see and understand the world around us. What that means practically is a lot of augmented and virtual reality, as well as uh, environmental scanning uh, through our programs, such as uh, Canvas which lets you um, map your uh, uh, house and uh, turn it into a scale-accurate CAD file. Oh, wow. You can map. So you well, you walk around uh, each room with like a laser scanner and you yeah, map out the dimensions of each room? Yeah, yeah. So we have a, a number of products, um, including the Structure Sensor, which is a, uh, a 3D scanner for uh, primarily for iOS. And uh, folk are using it for um, quite a number of different applications, including um, scanning people, uh, it's used really widely in the medical profession for, um, especially for like orthotics and stuff like that. So people mm. will scan, um, you know, someone who's missing a limb uh, rather than using a uh, cast like they used to. But then uh, we've built a couple of uh, homegrown products uh, for the structure sensor ourselves, including uh, Canvas, like I mentioned, uh, and Bridge, our mixed reality headset. Uh, in addition to those, uh, we also have, uh, we recently acquired Hericosm. They create a uh, handheld uh, LiDAR scanner, 
So you can um, you basically hold this uh, LiDAR scanner on the end of a post. You can walk around, for example, like a football stadium. And by the time you've uh, walked around it once, you've created this uh, very dense uh, 3D point cloud of the, uh, in the, of the environment. So that's being used a lot by uh, folk in the uh, construction industry and uh, other things. How would you, you know, let's talk about the LiDAR stuff first. Um, <clears throat> if you're walking around with something, how does the object uh, adjust for the movements and the jostling and everything yet still map a room? I would think you'd have to sit there absolutely still and have it mounted on something with dampening in order for it to get a clear picture. Yeah, so that's actually how a lot of uh, current, a lot of historically how a lot of uh, LiDAR scanners work. You'll uh, go there with a tripod, for example, uh, set it up, leave, it'll blast, you know, the, uh, the lasers around the room, then you'll come back and move it to a new location. The neat thing with uh, the PX80, which is the handheld LiDAR scanner that uh, we recently acquired um, through Paracosm, is that uh, it actually has a 180 degree uh, camera on top. And so we're doing a uh, slam essentially to localize the uh, LiDAR scanner and then uh, stitch the uh, generated point cloud afterwards and do all of the cool computer vision things like a loop closure uh, in addition to using the color camera to uh, give each point uh, color. So rather than, for example, uh, if you've seen LiDAR scanners on self-driving cars, for example, you'll see that they're generating a series of points but those are just uh, points in space without any sort of color information. Mm -hmm. PX80, it actually generates uh, a colored point cloud. So more like if you've seen, for example, like uh, someone streaming uh, Connect, right, where you get the point cloud, but along with all of the texture data there, it's very similar to that, except, you know, uh, orders of magnitude uh, uh, yeah. stronger. <laughs> but again, your products, if you, do you, you know, how careful do you have to be when you're scanning a room or a face or whatever it is? I mean, do you have to... Does the scanner absolutely. have to be absolutely yeah, so still, or can you just... You know? No, no. So it, it's... Uh, well, it depends. I mean, if you're scanning a person, uh, you definitely do want them to remain still. But the actual scanning process takes maybe 30 seconds, you know? So it's... Um, uh, right now, if, you know, a user, for example, moved their face, uh, mostly what would happen is uh, it's the uh, texture where you might end up with somebody with two noses, for example, and uh, nobody wants that. So... Um, right. So for uh, scanning or for scanning a room, same thing. It's, um, it's actually really straightforward, and uh, scanning an, a room takes an average of two minutes. Uh, and so you're able to just walk in there with, for example, an iPad with the structure sensor attached, pan it over the room kind of as you, if you were painting it, press save, and then you have a, a dense 3D model of your environment, which you can you know, pull into Unity for uh, mixed or virtual reality experiences. Or again, uh, if you're doing uh, architecture, um, have that translated to a CAD file or I believe a uh, uh, Revit uh, file as well. How accurate are the scans nowadays? What you know, what's the measurements? They say they accurate to a centimeter or a micron? Or... Yeah, absolutely. I so for specifically for uh, Canvas, which is our home scanning application, I believe that the scans are accurate to within about two percent. So very useful for um, getting, so, so one thing that uh, a lot of people are using that for is um, people who are doing uh, home renovation, right? Previously, they would need to uh, go in and uh, spend, you know, up to eight hours measuring essentially every set of um, points in a room. So how wide are the windows? How high is the door? How wide is the door? How far is the door from the windows? You know, what's the length of this wall? Whereas now they can go in with a canvas, grab a map in again, two or three minutes, and then... Uh, uh, turn it into a CAD file and have any number of measurements available uh, immediately. 
you would want to, for example, let's just say you were ordering uh, new window panes. Those you would want to go in and um, double check just because, you know, the fit of the glass would be, needs to be very um, precise. But as far as um, uh, more, less, less uh, measurements where you're able to be less, have a lower level of fidelity, um, it's, uh, it's perfect. What's, uh, what happens if you scan twice? You, know, you go, you do it in a room, and then you come back, you do it you know, a minute later. What's the variability of the device? Yeah, so that would, that, would, that would fall within kind of again the same like one to two percent um, error margin. So um, so again, there might be very subtle differences between the two, but um, uh, not more than just you know a little tiny bit of uh, wiggle room there. And for things like um, that require less um, accurate measurements, again, if you're scanning a person in order to uh, 3D print out a model of them, for example, or maybe you're uh, scanning. Uh, so, for example, we, I've seen uh, one person who's going around and scanning uh, uh, objects in museums, for example, you know, to put up on the web for people to be able to view. Uh, right. Those, um, the measurements are, uh, are essentially irrelevant. And so what you end up getting back is this uh, really dense model along with a, a really high fidelity uh, texture associated with that. But again, um, in, in, addition to, uh, in addition to all of this, we also have a... Um, very robust um, tracking engine for um, to power next generation uh, headsets. Um, so it's an inside out tracking solution, which uses our own computer vision along with either one of our active depth sensors or uh, stereo cameras in order to uh, power inside out tracking, for example, on uh, you know a next generation VR device or uh, robots or uh, drones. And we're actually integrating with a, a number of really interesting companies on all of those fronts. All right, so in VR, <clears throat> you're scanning continuously to make sure that, uh, you know, the person wearing the VR headset, you know, they're not bumping into stuff in the environment or you're able to interact properly with objects in the environment, right? Yeah, exactly. And so there's a couple of different things we can do there. So, for example, with the um, bridge headset, which is um, – so with our uh, uh, embeddable modules, a lot of those are currently in the process of being integrated into next-generation headsets. Um, but the bridge headset, which is our in-house um, produced HMD, uh, is available now. It's uh, compatible with uh, iPhone, uh, so it's similar to like a Gear VR meets a HoloLens kind of. And with that, you're able to do both um, spatially aware mixed reality, which means that, again, you have the dense mesh of your environment. So, for example, when I, um, if I throw a ball into the world, it's going to actually bounce off of the table and then like roll under the couch, right? And you won't be able to see it because we have that uh, context contextual spatial information. Um, but the neat thing is then uh, with Bridge, for example, if you were in mixed reality and you open up a portal and you walk into virtual reality, because we have that dense mesh of the uh, environment around you, you're actually able to, uh, to walk around with a very high degree of certainty, um, knowing that you aren't going to run into a table or something like that. So for example, mm -hmm. with uh, the Vive, um, you know, they have that chaperone system where you kind of block out your walls so you know that you won't run into anything. But because we have right. the active depth of the depth, we can be far more accurate. And we can show, for example, you know, if you have a table in your living room, when you get up close to that, we can actually identify the table and be like, oh, hey, you know, <laughs> um, you, you, you know, if you can actually navigate around um, objects in your real world while you're in virtual reality uh, using virtual. And then it sounds like for any VR headset to be worth anything, it has to have a really good way of scanning its environment as you maneuver in in the VR. Otherwise, you'd run into stuff or your hand would go yeah. through objects or, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and so there, there's a number of approaches right now. I mean, the first generation, the wave of first generation VR was, uh, took two approaches. One was the outside in tracked approach, similar to what Oculus and uh, Vive did, where, you know, you would mount multiple 
um, cameras around your environment. And then you'd go through kind of a setup phase where you have to clear all of the objects out of your room, kind of define where your walls are, and then uh, you'd have to do that, you know, process um, whenever you wanted to, to run the experience. You need to make sure that your environment was cleared out and that the external cameras kind of knew the limits of, of where you were. The other approach that people took was to uh, remove movement completely, you know, so Gear VR and the uh, cardboard or Daydream were rotational only uh, VR devices where you could look left or right, um, up and down, but you couldn't actually stand up and walk through your environment. And so with uh, headsets like Bridge or, you know, headsets using our uh, uh, inside-out tracking solution, you have kind of the best of both worlds where there's no external cameras to set up, uh, but you can still stand up and walk uh, safely through your environment, um, even though you don't have um, any sort of external tracking solution. It's very similar also to what um, I believe the um, uh, Microsoft uh, Mixed Reality team is doing with their um, first generation of inside-out tracked headsets, um, specifically like the uh, Samsung headset, for example, uses an inside-out uh, tracking solution. So what are, what are the uses for this that you're seeing? What do people want to use it for commercially or individually? And, you know, what use cases are, like, the most exciting to you? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're seeing right now, I think, is um, there was this hope, uh, I think, across the entire industry that virtual reality was really ready for the consumer market, especially, you know, kind of late 2016 leading into 2017. Um, there was a lot of hype around virtual reality and a lot of the, the technology had really uh, come a long way. What we saw was that it isn't ready yet for the straight consumer market, but what we found is that a lot of specific uh, verticals have had a really good reception towards virtual reality, specifically places like uh, retail and you know uh, events, gaming, um, a lot of specific subsections have, uh, have really taken it very far. And personally, I think that that's the way that it's actually going to end up entering the mainstream is more through uh, practical applications initially, followed by, you know, uh, uh, more and more consumer adoption. But my personal assumption is that it's going to be more of a linear growth pattern, at least uh, initially, compared to the kind of uh, hockey stick that everybody was hoping for uh, when we first started diving into virtual reality several years ago. Well, what are the practical applications you think that it'll, it'll be used for? Yeah, but it's least, again, I mean, I, I think you could, you could dive into uh, any industry and pull a number of them up. But one that we're particularly excited about is obviously uh, uh, so, or not obviously, but one that we're particularly excited about is the home. So, you know, uh, once you have a 3D model of your home, uh, there's actually a lot that you can do with it, um, especially in, you know, virtual reality. So uh, whether that's, um, you know, using your home environment for, uh, uh, um, you know, like construction purposes or, um, you know, thinking about in the future when maybe more people be doing uh, interior design there's uh, there's quite a few uh, different applications. Uh, Realty, for example, is another one where we've seen uh, Realty and architecture are ones where we've seen a lot of uh, adoption by the in the VR industry. So, for example, uh, I know several people now who have actually um, you know gone to a realtor's office and dropped into virtual reality and navigated through multiple houses uh, before they actually go out and visit one in person, so that they can uh, you know actually get a sense for um, what the uh, what the home is like. And same thing with uh, architecture. You know, a lot of these people doing uh, visualization, which previously had been done, you know, either like literally on paper or, you know, using 3D modeling programs on the computer, uh, they don't give you the same sense of uh, scale and um, presence that you get with virtual reality. And so we're seeing a pretty good adoption among the um, 
construction industry, not construction, but architecture industry when it comes to... So you could draw something out in CAD, for instance, and then you could put a, you could load it up into like a VR experience and walk through or rotate or see the design in 3D. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And see, see it in like one-to-one -one scale. So like, you know, what does it actually look like when I'm standing in the uh, lobby and actually uh, walk through it as if you were uh, really there? So how many of these kind of commercial applications are in use or is this still in the future? Yeah, so that's, again, the, the thing that we're seeing right now is actually a large number of these um, commercial VR applications are being used um, in, in the medical industry, in uh, construction. Obviously, there's a large uh, gaming component. But I think what we're waiting for, again, is, or, you know, what people are hoping for is for VR to hit kind of a critical tipping point when it comes to the more consumer applications, uh, where right now, you know, the... Uh, people who are very actively involved in VR are more uh, enthusiasts and uh, early adopters. And that's uh, great, but it means that your uh, pool of, you know, your install base is uh, is a lot smaller than, you know, if you're making, for example, like a mobile uh, game for your uh, phone. And so there's uh, there's going to be this process where until uh, there's you, you have a kind of a critical uh, install base, and it means that the developers who are trying to work on consumer-facing applications uh, often require support from the larger companies. So for example, um, uh, like HTC, for example, has a fund where they uh, sponsor development of, uh, of new content. Oculus has uh, a similar one where they sponsor uh, content um, because right now for uh, kind of the, the, you know, if you're making a game or whatever um, and your install base is, you know, tens of thousands, uh, you're not going to be able to, to really uh, recoup the profit on that. But the major VR players realizing realize that having a, a solid um, library of content is kind of critical. It's one of those chicken and egg problems, right? Like until there's good content, um, people won't adopt your platform. Um, but until there's enough people on the platform, it's really hard for developers to justify making content for it. And so a lot of the... Well, what, what larger, are some examples of good content? What are people looking for that you've seen? Yeah, so there, there's, a, there's a couple of things. And I would say this is one of the more interesting aspects of uh, virtual reality right now. There's um, kind of a, a split, right? There are there are folk who are making experiences that could not be made in any other medium, right? And and I think that's actually the future of VR. You know, they're making um, whether it's uh, um, social uh, experiences where you're actually hanging out with people and walking around and talking that just feel so much more uh, immersive in virtual reality. Uh, Facebook Spaces mm -hmm. actually is a really good example of that. Where what was an example? You know, yeah, Facebook Spaces. It's um, you put on a headset, you know, and you connect through Facebook, and you can just start. Um, your friends can drop into this virtual reality environment with you, and you're mostly just sitting there having a conversation. But you, you know, you can pick up a, a marker and like draw in the air. You know, you can play little uh, games together. Uh, but it lets people um, connect in a much more casual manner than through like Skype or a FaceTime call, where it's very direct, right? lets people's attention um, drift, lets people be a lot more playful, um, and it's something that really couldn't have been built in any other medium. The counterpoint, though, is um, something that I think is a challenge that the industry is trying to overcome right now, which is that the, there's a lot of content that's being produced right now by, um, for example, mobile app developers, people who have experience developing traditional video games, and they're trying to just translate their experiences directly from uh, the desktop into virtual reality, right? Without thinking uh, about it uh, from a virtual reality first perspective. And that's really challenging because what you end up is, with is something that 
could have been built, you know, in a, in a different medium and doesn't really benefit. It doesn't push the boundaries of virtual reality right now. And considering the virtual reality medium is so fresh, uh, I think that, that um, you know, just taking a, a mobile game, for example, and dropping it into virtual reality without any other sort of uh, selling point actually mm. kind of poisons the poisons the well to an extent because it means that people try out this content and they're not um, engaged or hooked and it kind of so this this is something for example that we saw a lot with first generation mobile mobile VR where there were a lot of um, really uh, low effort applications kind of like how you've seen uh, in cryptocurrencies right. People would just add blockchain to their name in order to get, you know, media attention. And there's right. a number of uh, applications I think where they just um, like really quickly hack together a VR version of their app and put it out there without any thought for the uh, user experience or how it actually feels. And now you know there's a there's kind of a slew of these uh, low effort uh, mobile VR applications that um, take up a lot of space but don't actually move the medium forward at all. Well, what do you think are going to be the the things that people really want that make a VR application? <clears throat> cool is it the social aspect is huge i mean what what are the yeah, so, uh, factors so that you the, see that are important absolutely the the social aspect is uh, definitely a large part of it and uh, I'm, a, I'm a real uh, believer in uh, social vr as something that we're all going to be using uh, at some point in the future and i think that that level of social cohesion is actually really uh, critical to the next generation of virtual reality one of the things that's uh, important there i think is uh, the ability to to and there's a number of people working on this again including the uh, the guys at facebook i think but right now it's really challenging to just um hang out with a group of friends in virtual reality right you can boot up a specific application uh you can find your friends there you can all get together as a group but it's really but what you can do for example right now is um i couldn't boot up my uh my headset over here uh join a group with three of my friends and just have us drop from one game to another right like uh, like go into an experience um, we're all there having fun. We drop back to the like game room and then go into a different experience and just kind of spend some time exploring together. Right now, it's, there's a lot of uh, work involved um, through each individual experience in order to actually be able to uh, connect with your friends. And you're kind of limited to doing it uh, within a particular experience, which makes the it creates a lot of friction, uh, which doesn't actually necessarily need to be there. That, that, that's one element. Well, of even even within is, an experience. Yeah, like Minecraft, you can't really, you can text, you know, like type commands to each other, but you can't really talk to each other. But like my son mm -hmm. is playing Fortnite, and there it's, you know, the, you can talk to each other and listen to ambient sounds and all that, so it's different. Related, you know, you get to log into their servers, and there's no, like... Yeah, yeah, and so I think that's something that, um, I, again, there's a number of people working on solutions for that, and I think it's going to be a while before we see anything, but that's one of the things that I'm personally really excited for. The other thing, though, that's really important, again, is the actual use of uh, virtual reality as an independent medium. So there's a number of experiences that I've seen. Um, so I, I was at uh, Sundance this past year and was able to try out a number of uh, the virtual reality experiences there. And the, the kind of thinking there that like takes full advantage of the uh, immersion is really critical. So an example of that, so I, I was there working on the uh, Wavana project, which was a, a mixed and virtual reality documentary following the, um, the Yawanawa people of the, uh, the Amazon. And it did a really good job, I think, um, translating between multiple mediums. So, you know, there's a 360 video aspect, and then it kind of translates really nicely, you know, almost like Dreamlight. 
way into uh, virtual reality, and you're actually moving through a, a LiDAR scan of the jungle, and then you kind of transition between these various um, mediums almost within within virtual reality, and it, it, it makes you feel really um, present and immersed there. Uh, another one that I saw, uh, which unfortunately I can't remember the name of right now, uh, but won a, quite, a, quite a few awards, is one where you actually end up becoming a black hole. And so it starts kind of with the history of black holes and you're floating in space and you see the formation of one and then you, you slip down and actually fall into the black hole. And when you uh, emerge, you're actually kind of taking the, uh, the place of the black hole. One of the really interesting things that, uh, that this particular project did was um, once you emerge as the black hole, there's a, a mini documentary kind of where the, the narrator is talking through how black holes actually emit um, uh, gravitational waves, right? You know, as they circle around each other, and that's one of the ways that we're able to uh, identify them. But in order to visualize the, um, the 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 waves, you actually have to make sound, right? And so you ha you have to make <laughs> these like deep booming sounds or or yelps or say words or whatever. And as you uh, uh, vocalize, you're able to visualize the waves kind of streaming uh, out from you. And this is this is something that again uh, I haven't seen anybody else doing before, but really tipped people over from a passive viewing experience to a uh, uh, into an active participant of what was going on in a way that um, just having some controller input uh, doesn't doesn't have the same level of uh, like um, be believing that it's actually real, you know? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so in addition to the social aspect, what's what else do you think will be critical for people to really want to use VR, AR, and mixed, mixed reality and get into mm -hmm. it and make it useful for people? Absolutely. And I know I'm, uh, I feel like I'm harping on the, the same point here, but it's doing things in mixed and virtual reality that can't be done in other mediums, I think, is one of the, one of the critical points there. For example, uh, when ARKit was released recently, I went uh, online and downloaded all of the different ARKit apps that I could find. You know, Working in the industry, I wanted to have an idea of what was out there. And what I found was, with a couple of exceptions, uh, all of the applications that I downloaded um, didn't need augmented reality, right? You know, they were, they were for example, um, games that rather than um, playing on your screen, you were able to play on your desktop. And that's cool. There's some novelty in that, and I would play them once or twice. But every time that I would come back to it afterwards, um, it was uh, the augmented reality aspect felt like a chore, actually. And I would almost always uh, disable the augmented reality and just um, play it on my phone, right? Because scanning your environment, moving your phone back and forth, waiting for it to initialize, and then having to move around your real environment only makes sense if the content on the other side justifies the work that you put into it. And a lot of these uh, applications weren't, um, you know, I mean, it was cool, and, and it's probably better to, to have the augmented reality aspect than not have the augmented reality aspect. But, um, but it wasn't something that couldn't be done without augmented reality. So, for example, kind of counterpoint there, uh, we made an uh, augmented reality application called Tap Measure, and it's kind of a lightweight version of Canvas where you, uh, you load up the application, you point it around your room, and you tap the corners of your room, right? And you get this kind of, uh, you end up building a 3D model of your uh, environment just by, um, you know, kind of walking around and identifying the different uh, corners of your room. And that's something that would be impossible without the... Uh, the room tra the the tracking features from ARKit, right? Not not impossible without ARKit, but impossible without um, augmented reality. 
And so every okay. time you, you launch the application, what you're really doing is you're, you're building a 3D model of your home. You're not launching the application to like check out augmented reality. And so I think that's one of the things right now is that right now uh, augmented reality is like the focus of a lot of these applications instead of being a means to an end. And so what you really need to do is find uh, something really compelling that wouldn't be possible without augmented reality or wouldn't be possible without virtual reality and build that rather than building something that could be consumed in any medium and, and just dropping it uh, on top of your desk. Another really good example of a, a virtual reality application, uh, this is from the first generation of virtual reality apps, so it might be kind of outdated by now, but there's this um, VR app called, I think, either the room or the chair, something like that. Uh, oh, Sightline. There you go. And it was really... They, they did something really interesting playing with um, perception where um, wherever you looked in the world, uh, it stayed completely static. So you're in a, you're in a room okay. and there's a table in front of you and you're kind of like, what's going on? And so you look to the, the left and then when you look back to center, the entire environment has changed, right? But you haven't seen anything change. The only change is when you don't look at it. And then you like look over your shoulder and you look back in front of you and now you're in a field. And it's, it's where whenever you're not paying attention to something, it actually uh, morphs into a different environment. And so what you get is even though you never see anything change, you're, you're taking on this journey through a variety of different environments. And that was really fascinating because it played with um, perception in a way that would not have been compelling on a desktop experience. Um, but but something about actually, yeah, something about actually looking around um, and feeling things change without seeing them induce this real uh, dreamlike state uh, which, I, which I haven't experienced in, uh, in any other medium yet. What do you think is going to be the most <clears throat> useful medium? Do you think it'll be AR? Because you can still be in the re you know the regular world, but you know you can manipulate objects and see things that you normally couldn't see. You know VR, you're kind of like in this other world. Do you think mixed reality? Yeah, which I, one do you I, think I, is I really going to be the, the one people like and use the most? I think to a, to a certain extent, that's a question that's being asked uh, a lot in the industry, and I see a lot of, you know, articles popping up saying, you know, who will win, AR or VR? And I don't really think it's actually a uh, competition. You know, they, they fit very different markets. And it's like saying, what, what's better, uh, television or movies? Which one's going to win, television or movies? <laughs> mm. And, you know, there, there are uh, uh, experiences that can only be told. You know, you couldn't tell. I mean, the experience of going to a theater and watching Star Wars is completely different from sitting at home and watching Netflix while you cook, right? And they're both right. um, they're both mature uh, mediums and they serve very different purposes. And so I think the uh, they're more sister technologies than they are uh, competitive technologies. A lot of the underlying uh, software needs are the same for both of them. I would say augmented reality Augmented reality is the more challenging one um, because with virtual reality, you have complete control over your environment. Whereas with augmented mm -hmm. reality, there's right. a lot more constraints. Uh, for example, um, you know, needing to, uh, needing to keep things specifically tracked to the real world, uh, you know, your latency needs to be really low. Um, to, to really have a compelling mixed reality experience, it's best to actually generate a, a dense 3D model of your environment. So again, uh, objects interact with the real world the way that you expect them to. Um, but right. at the end of the day, again, um, there will be some experiences, I think, that uh, exist both in augmented reality and in mixed reality. But at the end of the day, I believe that um, most content will be generated either for one or the other, depending on the kind of uh, needs of the uh, application. Okay, it makes sense. Um, so what's, um, 
But yeah, last question or two. What what do you see is happening literally right now? You know, in 2018, what what can people expect to see from a sipital in the next six months, or in the market in general? What's what's just about to come out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll answer the uh, occipital part first. Um, so actually, we're one thing that we've been doing is we have a mixed reality SDK, um, the Bridge Engine, uh, which uses which is a mixed reality for um, spatially aware. You know, uses the structure sensor basically to create a spatially aware mixed reality. And that's been in a private beta uh, since since it was uh, announced in early 2016, and we're going to be releasing that to um, any structure sensor owner uh, uh, in the middle of this month, which is uh, really exciting. Um, and so that means that basically anybody with an iPad and a structure sensor will be able to create these uh, really advanced, spatially aware uh, mixed reality experiences. Um, and there, there's kind of a hole in the market right now um, around that, mm. with the because, uh, for example, um, you know. This is something that uh, Google Tango used to fill, but uh, you know Tango has actually been uh, discontinued. And people previously could do it using the structure sensor, but they needed to get you know on an invite list in order to get access to the uh, the beta. And so we're going to be kind of broadly sharing this with the world. Uh, another thing again right. is the uh, the broader availability of the PX80, um, the mobile lidar scanner, and integration of the PX80 or deeper integration of the PX80 with uh, Canvas. So like I mentioned earlier, how you can take a structure sensor, scan a room, and have it turned into a CAD file. Um, what we're working on right now is a process for um, you know, somebody to be able to take a PX80, this really intense uh, mobile LiDAR scanner, scan an entire stadium, and then have that turned into a scale-accurate CAD file for uh, architecture uh, as well. So again, a lot of places where this would be useful are um, would be, for example, maybe a warehouse where the uh, original blueprints uh, are no longer available. To be able to walk through the warehouse in half an hour with a, you know, 15 minutes with this uh, PX80 and actually get a scale accurate um, CAD file, which would um, supplement, you know, a lot of the work that um, that people would be doing. Uh, so th- 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 there's a number of initiatives at Occidental, but those are two um, ones off the uh, top of my head. As far as the uh, industry goes, I think we're, we're starting to see the uh, you know, we're past the first generation of mixed and virtual reality headsets. Um, the HoloLens has been available for a while. The, uh, you know, Vive and Oculus have both been available for a while. Um, and I, I know that a lot of the second generation headsets are, you know, under development um, by all of the major players. But what I think we're get, we can expect over the next six months is um, essentially the 1.5 of virtual reality. And so that means, for example, the Vive Pro uh, launched recently. And, you know, it's a really great um, device, uh, adds stereo cameras to the front, increases the resolution, it's a much nicer form factor, um, but it's, a, you know, it's the first generation Vive++. Plus Plus. It's, a, it's, a, it's definitely an improved version, but it isn't a, um, definitely isn't a 2.0. Uh, same thing kind of with... One thing, speaking of form factor, you know, I wear glasses, a lot of people do, and most of these VR headsets don't, don't seem to work with glasses. Is yours and does anyone seem to care? (laughs) Funny that you asked that because that's actually one of the features of the bridge headset is that uh, so we don't have uh, uh, IPD adjustments, um, but what we do have actually is replaceable lens cups. So if you have a bridge headset and you wear glasses, you're actually able to just um, pop out the lenses and pop in essentially prescription lenses so that you can use the headset uh, without the need for glasses. And I think, uh, to my knowledge, actually, we're the only headset that uh, offers that. Well, it's still kind of cumbersome, you know. You have to get a 
second pair of glasses or pop out the the lenses in your own glasses, you know. Yeah, no, no. So you don't you pop know out the lenses of your own glasses. It's uh, the uh, bridge headset comes with um, an extra set uh, or two extra sets of uh, lens spacers, essentially. And it's, it takes about 10 seconds. You just uh, unclip the uh, lens spacers that are in there and reattach the lenses to the um, the ones that are correct for your prescription. So it's a, it's a really quick process, and you don't actually have to do anything uh, complicated. It's just a, there's no screws or anything. just clips in and clips out. But does that let me wear my glasses when I use it, or do I use, like, is it using, like, Walmart reading glasses, essentially? Yeah, you guys no, have no, a series no. of, like, power lenses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so essentially, you would take your glasses off, and you would just put the bridge headset on, and the uh, lens spacers that we put in there would essentially adjust the uh, optics to work with your prescription. So it wouldn't be um, perfect. You know, I think it's uh, we have zero to negative one, negative three to negative five, or negative three and then negative five, I think, are the uh, are the, the spacers that come with the bridge headset. Um, but essentially, you would take your glasses off, you would swap out the uh, the lens caps, and then you just put on the VR headset um, as if you were wearing, you know, as, as if you had regular vision. Well, is there a reason why people don't make VR headsets so you can wear glasses and put them on? Well, again, it's kind of a... Um, there are headsets that work um, better with that. There are headsets that work worse. Uh, the larger headsets like the Oculus Rift and uh, HTC Vive uh, do work with um, thinner glasses often. Um, it's very large frames that are challenging. Um, but the thing with mobile uh, headsets is that they're actually um, uh, narrower than uh, most glasses um, can out of the box. Um, and so there would need to be uh, a lot of um, uh, uh, design changes, uh, uh, significant um, uh, structural changes to support glasses to a level that would actually make it um, a more unpleasant experience for most people. And so that's why we took the approach of actually having uh, replaceable lens cups to uh, to address that problem. So you think it's not going to happen? People are not going to accommodate people with glasses? They're going to try to do it this way? Probably, yeah. I mean, it, it's something where as the... So another thing right now is, you know, the first-generation VR headsets that are very um, already cumbersome, right? I think as we start to see uh, slimmer and more lightweight form factors, uh, it's going to be easier to accommodate uh, people with glasses. But right now, the challenge is getting it into, uh, into a comfortable form factor for... Um, everybody, which we still haven't hit at this point, uh, let alone um, starting to serve um, people, you know, with uh, various uh, needs. Well, people have differently shaped heads, different sizes. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very good. So what what's the best way for people to find out more about Occipital? Uh, you know, visit the website, uh, you know, how do they contact you if they're interested? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, definitely check out uh, occipital.com and bridge.occipital.com and Canvas. Dot com. <laughs> Those are the uh, the three main products that I talked about. The LiDAR scanner that I mentioned earlier, uh, the PX80, is made by Paracosm, um, and that's uh, also easy to find with a with a quick Google. Uh, feel free to reach out to me if anybody has any specific uh, questions or um, proposals. Always interested to uh, to chat with folk. Uh, my email is jacob at occipital com. Well, very good, Jacob. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, hold on a second. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, 
artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.